we're going to jump right in. And um, as you can see, and as you've heard, I've uh, titled this study, The Gospel-Centered Family. The Gospel-Centered Family. And so that's the question, that's uh, the topic, not the question, the topic that we are going to jump right into. And uh, so I want to kind of lay the framework for that tonight um, by um, posing some reasons that we should study this topic, reasons that we should want to know what God's Word has to say to us regarding uh, the family and marriage and relationships. And, um, and then we want to, uh, really simply put, just uh, set the stage uh, for how we're going to approach this and, uh, tonight and in the weeks ahead. So our current situation, why study this topic? We would probably all agree uh, that our culture today um, is characterized by rampant immorality. Immorality all around uh, in our culture. Um, and we see some descriptions of this here in your notes. Firstly, in the world. And the first blank there is uh, abortion. Abortion. This is just kind of a broad sweeping survey, list of some reasons why we should be interested in what God has to say about family, relationships, and these issues. So abortion. Thankfully, abortion rates have currently dropped uh, to the lowest rates uh, in the U.S. since abortion was legalized in 1973. And so what does that look like? Uh, Right now, uh, the current uh, abortion rate is 16.9 per 1,000 women ages 15 to 44. So 16.9 per 1,000 women uh, ages 15 to 44. Um, Compare that to 29.3 at its height uh, in 1981. Nevertheless, worldwide, there's approximately 46 million abortions done each year. 46 million annually. That's almost a million a week, if my math is right. Um, done around the world each year. So next uh, blank there, divorce. And I think this one speaks to it for itself, to itself. We know that in Scripture there uh, are limited grounds given for a a biblical divorce, but uh, the vast majority of divorces that take place today are not for those reasons. It's simply a matter uh, of convenience. Next, gender confusion. Gender confusion. Uh, Once again, a, a... I think that one, uh, for the most part, speaks uh, for itself. Nextly, pessimism about marriage. And um, I was frantically thumbing through a a book I've been reading, trying to find a quote that I left this book at home and asked Ashley to to bring it to me tonight. But I began reading a book by Timothy Keller um, entitled The Meaning of Marriage and um, have read enough of it to recommend it, but highly recommend it. Um, on marriage and God's design for marriage. But uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in uh, the New York City area of a large um, Presbyterian church, has become a prominent uh, theologian, very influential, and uh, has, uh, his church is a mega church, primarily composed of young people, a lot of young singles. And so he writes kind of in the, uh, the opening pages of his book about Uh, the conversations that he has had with many of these young people, young single people about marriage and and, and where marriage is on their horizon. And he writes uh, 
uh, from an interesting perspective, stating that many of his conversations with these uh, younger uh, singles uh, have led him um, to believe that, that many younger people have a negative view of marriage based on experiences, uh, whether family experiences or, or experiences that they've witnessed uh, with friends uh, and the like. And uh, one thing that I wanted to the quote, I think I found that I wanted to read, um, he says this, he says, so in our society, we are too pessimistic about the possibility of monogamy because we are too idealistic about what we want in a marriage partner. And this all comes because we have a flawed understanding of the purpose of marriage itself. And so really that's uh, what I hope to explore in the coming weeks. What is the purpose of marriage according to scripture? What is God's design for marriage? Um, and how that should influence the way that we uh, view our spouse if we are married, how that uh, influences the way that we teach our children, our grandchildren, um, how we uh, approach these cultural issues of our day. Uh, So the next thing, the next blank you have there is pornography. After pessimism about marriage, pornography. Uh, Pornography worldwide revenues in 2006 were estimated at least at $97 billion in a single year. $97 billion in 2006, uh, pornography, uh, worldwide revenues. And uh, the U.S. was listed as the fourth highest um, in that area. Nextly, prostitution. And many of you probably heard about the scandal uh, that was busted at the Super Bowl, uh, a number of young teenage girls, I believe it was 16, were rescued out of uh, prostitute lifestyle that had been uh, that had gone to uh, the the Super Bowl area in order to um, participate in these types of parties. And so, this is a real issue in our day. It's an issue worldwide, and it's also an issue right here in our own country. Um, There's an estimated 40 million prostitutes worldwide today. 40 million prostitutes uh, acting worldwide today. And then lastly, why else should we study this topic? Um, And because our world, in our world, we see uh, the ever-continuing marriage debate. The marriage debate. What is marriage? Uh, This is a present cultural shift. There is a present cultural shift going on in our society about how we define marriage, what is an acceptable marriage, uh, how should we view marriage, what should we advocate about marriage, Um, and uh, the pendulum is swinging to a new perspective on marriage, and so the question, the necessary question then is, who is right? Is there a right? And we certainly want to uh, tackle that question in our time together as well, but not only are these things issues in the world, but these are also issues in the church. We're not immune to these things. We experience some of these same uh, challenges, same battles, same uh, perspectives uh, that we struggle with as well right here in the church. And firstly, you have their denominational splits, denominational splits. And you have a quote from uh, a professor at Southwestern Seminary uh, named Daniel Heimbach. And He writes this, he says, The deepest divisions separating evangelicals in America these days are not differences over worship or music or church government or free will or divine sovereignty or gifts of the Holy Spirit. The deepest, 
Most controversial matters dividing evangelicals in America these days are differences over sex. And a number of denominations are dividing and splitting over these very issues. How we view marriage, how we view gender roles. Um, Anglicans are splitting, Episcopalians are are splitting. Um, A number of denominations have split, not necessarily over this exact issue, but um, some have. Uh, Churches have split over this issue, and in nearly every mainline denomination, there are two segments within the denomination, and one falls down on one side of this issue, and another falls down on another side of the issue. And to that end, I was just reading some news headlines uh, this afternoon and and came across one uh, from MSN News and caught my attention. And it was Methodists in crisis over gay marriage, comma, church law. Methodists in crisis over gay marriage, comma, church law. And within the Methodist tradition, uh, subgroups are arising on opposing sides of this issue. And there has been a, a more conservative, theologically conservative Methodist group that's organized called the Wesleyan Covenant Network that's standing for traditional marriage and traditional views on gay marriage. And then on the other side, there's a whole other group um, initially appearing to be a much larger group uh, falling down on uh, a different side of this. And uh, from this particular article... I want to read this quote. Since 1972, the Book of Discipline, which is um, a rule book for the Methodist Church, the Book of Discipline has called same-gender relationships incompatible with Christian teaching and has banned clergy from taking actions contrary to that position. No ordinations or clergy appointments are allowed for self-avowed practicing homosexuals. No ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions are permitted in churches. No clergy can preside at the ceremonies no matter where the events are held. And so a number that disagree with that from within the Methodist church, a number of clergy from within the Methodist church have begun uh, performing same-sex unions, same-sex marriages uh, against uh, the rule book of their denomination. And uh, one prominent bishop in the Methodist Church, a retired bishop, Bishop Talbert, wrote this about that particular uh, rule that I just read. He said, I declare to you that the derogatory language and restrictive laws in the book of discipline are immoral and unjust and no longer deserve our loyalty and obedience. I call on the more than 1,100 clergy who have signed the pledge to stand firm on their resolve to perform marriages among same-sex persons, same-sex couples, and to do so in the normal course of their pastoral duties, thus defying the laws that prohibit them from doing so. So this is a real live issue. You guys know this today, not just in the world but in the church as well, where the church is fighting over these issues, practicing homosexual leaders and pastors becoming the norm, the norm in some churches and denominations. Also, we see church leaders misrepresenting the truth. Church leaders, teachers and pastors, clergy, misrepresenting the truth. And you have a a quote there from a retired bishop, John Shelby Spong, 
who wrote the Ten Commandments are based on nothing less than the tribal prejudices, stereotypes, and limited knowledge of the people who created them. Biblical sexual standards need to be exposed immediately as immoral and removed from the ethical guidelines that any of us today would seek to follow. And so we expect these things to be real issues in the world, do we not? I mean, Scripture tells us that that we'll be known by our fruit. It will look different from the world, but it's a whole different animal altogether when you have leaders within mainline churches standing up and saying something totally contrary to what we believe Scripture teaches. So church leaders misrepresenting the truth and immorality in the church itself. So many church members and leaders are going through divorce, having extramarital affairs, struggling with pornography, etc. All the things that we see the world struggling with. It's also in the church. So what does this condition within the church say about us as Christians, as believers, as people who claim to be the people of God? What does this say about us, generally speaking? It tells us that we have a lack of trust in God. We have a lack of trust in God. If we believe Scripture tells us clearly what what God's will is, what His ways for us are, including in the home and marriage and within our families, yet our practices don't seem to line up with that. On some level, we fail to believe what, what God says is true about these particular issues. And so you have uh, a quote there from Psalm 119, and I really wanted to include all of Psalm 119, uh, but it would have taken several more pages. It has 170-something verses. But I do want to read the first 16. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. They do no wrong but follow His ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying Your decrees. And I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that came from your mouth. Or they come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And the song goes on and on and on about delighting in the statutes, in the words, in the law of the Lord. And if we trust in the Lord and His way, and in His Word, then we will naturally want to know His Word so that we can be faithful to His Word. So what should we do in light of all this immorality? I think we would all agree, I'm making an assumption there, we would all agree that there's, there's a problem. That there are things that are happening both in the world and in the church that are contrary to, to God's desire. And, and so what should we as People who claim to follow Christ do in light of that. And firstly, we ought to listen to the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God. 
All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 4. So let's listen to the word of God. If scripture really is that, that's what it says about itself. It says it's God-breathed. It's the word of God. It's useful for rebuking, for correcting, for teaching, for training in righteousness. So that we would be mature followers of Christ. If it really is that, then we, we should want to know what it says. should want to know what it teaches so that we could be faithful. The Word of God is our ultimate source of authority and accountability. Our ultimate source of authority and accountability. As people who claim to follow the God of Scripture, to know the Christ of Scripture... That's what we stand on. We stand on His Word as our guide, our foundational guide for all that we believe and and all that we practice. So the Word of God is our ultimate source of authority and accountability. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Again, emphasis on Scripture. We have to have some sort of foundational truth basis because... All sorts of people are saying different things, opposing things about things such as marriage and sexuality, family roles and family relationships, among a host of other things. But those are a topic of study uh, in this series. And so we, we need a foundational truth source. And for us as Christians, that is the Word of God. We are accountable as believers to teach the Word And to obey the word. We're accountable to teach the word and to obey the word. All of us. Not just your pastor, although I certainly am. But all of us as followers of Christ. We are accountable to teach the word and to obey the word. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. James chapter 1 verses 22 and following. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So in this study, we want to know the truth about these issues. You don't want to know my opinion. You don't want to know anyone else's opinion because you will have as many opinions as you have people. We want to know the truth. What is God's truth about these particular issues? The Bible is our ultimate source of truth. Our ultimate source of truth. And once we know the truth, as we discover it through the Word of God, we must live in it. We're called to to obey it. Not just to know these things, but to obey the Word of God as it relates to to all of our living. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Following Christ is always worth it. Following Christ is always worth it. Just like I mentioned this morning, does it mean that it's always easy? Does it mean that it's always popular? Does it mean that it's without difficulty? But following Christ and His desire for your life and for my life is always worth it. So we want to listen to the Word of God as we explore this topic and Secondly, we want to lean on the grace of God. Let's lean on the grace of God. I say that because the issues that we will be jumping into in this study have no doubt touched and affected every single one of us in some way or another. But God is the God of grace. He's a God of hope. He's a God of restoration. And where there are past hurts, healing comes to Christ. And so we want to look at the character of God as we jump into this study. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so some of these issues that we'll be looking at or more personal, or have touched some of us in a way that they have in others. But the biblical truth, as presented right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is without Christ, every single one of us is lost in sin. And it's easy to point the finger at someone else. But these are issues that, that we all struggle with. And even more so, much, much more so, apart from Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Emphasis there on when you were dead in sin. You were a sinner. It was at that time that Christ died for me and you while we were in sin. 
He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Psalm 103, verses 8 and following. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the kind of God that we worship. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that we're listening to when we listen to Scripture, the Word of God. A God who who saves sinners. God who is merciful and compassionate on sinners like you and like me. Thankfully, God is a God of hope and forgiveness. God is a God of hope and forgiveness. And for the people of God, the gospel on these particular issues that we're jumping into is not meant to condemn but to correct. Not meant to condemn us, but to correct us where perhaps we're wrong. And so we seek the Lord's counsel in them. God is a refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1. Psalm 51, this is David's confession of sin. After committing adultery and murder, asking God, Saying, God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. This is God speaking. For my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Matthew eleven twenty eight and following, Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light And momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Thankfully, we serve a God who is a God of hope and forgiveness. We cannot understand our struggle with sexual immorality and sin without first understanding the gospel itself. 
without first understanding the gospel itself. Nor can we realize the motivation for following God's design for our relationships without first understanding the gospel itself. There's a reason that this series is titled The Gospel-Centered Family. Because as we live out God's design in our relationships and the relationships that are, that are closest to us, as we're faithful, we are presenting to the world a picture of the gospel. And we don't desire to be faithful simply to earn God's approval. You know this, we can't earn God's approval because we're all sinners, we've all fallen short. And so it's the grace of God as has been extended to each of us through the gospel of Jesus Christ that it becomes our motivation for seeking to follow God's design for our relationship. So what is the gospel? I'm going to quickly run through this just as we did in the fall in our foundation series. And some of you remember that. Um, in fact, we'll do it much quicker this time around because we have less time. But what is the gospel? We need to know what the gospel is. Gospel means good news. And you've heard this, and you'll continue to hear this because this is the foundational message of Scripture. This is what ought to influence all that we're about and all that we do as a church. So I'm using a little acrostic here to communicate what the gospel is. And in this acrostic, G stands for God. G stands for God. Specifically, I mean they're the character of God. And I'm going to read just one selection from each of these, one scripture selection. You've got several listed there um, that speak to God's character. But Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. And I believe I've already read this tonight, but I want to read it again. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So what do we learn? Even just from that snapshot picture of God's character, we learn that God is worthy and just and gracious, worthy and just and gracious. We clearly read about his grace there. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't hold sins against those who fear him, implying that that those that don't fear him, that don't recognize him for who he is, he, 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 he does hold accountable. They're not covered by the blood of Christ, and God is just in that. The R stands for rebellion. God is worthy and just and gracious. R stands for rebellion. And Romans chapter 3 gives us a snapshot view of our rebellion against God. Beginning in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who, who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. So humankind is sinful, all of us, rebellious creatures, we're sinful, we rebelled against God's standard, God is worthy and just and gracious, yet we are sinful, the A stands for atonement, 
atonement. I'll be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, speaking of Christ, the Son of God, we might become the righteousness of God. So this exchange takes place between the worthy and just and gracious creator, the perfect God, the holy God who has never sinned, and all of us who are full of sin. An exchange took place on the cross at Calvary through Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who was laid down for us, making our relationship right with our Creator for all those who believe. The C stands for conversion. Conversion. I'll be reading again from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. Faith in Christ is necessary for for salvation. Scripture spells that out clearly in other places. Acts 4.12, John 14.6. Jesus is the way. No other name exists by which we can receive salvation except the name of, of Christ. So conversion is in Christ. And lastly, the E stands for eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternity is at stake. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the message of scripture, eternity is at stake. How we respond to the gospel affects what we'll be doing for eternity. Eternity is at stake. So there you've got some gospel conclusions. The basis of salvation, according to the gospel is Christ. The basis of our salvation is Christ. It's not found in anything we can do or accomplish on our own. We've all fallen short of the standard of God, but the free gift of eternal life is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. The means of our salvation is faith. The means of our salvation. It's by grace we receive it in faith. Believing it to be true. And then the evidence of our salvation are our works. Works. Evidence of salvation works. And all of these are only possible because of the grace of God. The grace of God. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. So I hope this lays the framework, the foundation for what we're going to be doing in the next few weeks. We want to listen to the word of God. And so that's what we'll do in our time together. We want to have a biblical outlook on these things. What does the Bible say about marriage and family relationships? And we'll jump right into that next week as we look at God's design for marriage and sexuality. And that'll be a, a two-week, uh, two-weeker because there's a lot there that we will look at. And then we'll begin to look at some other relationships, parenting relationships in light of the gospel, and even conclude with uh, how this affects how each of us interacts with and lives in a world that opposes this view of the gospel and God's design for family relationships. And all, as we embark on this journey, let's lean on the grace of God, knowing that many, I dare say all of us, have fallen short of the standard of God's design for family relationships and marriage relationships and God's design for singleness and even prior to marriage and but we know that God is a God of grace and hope, forgiveness and restoration. And so we desire to, to listen to him and follow after him and to lean on him knowing that he is uh, a God who desires to see his children faithfully restored to right relationship with him and faithful obedience to him. Sound good? Thank you all for coming tonight. Let's dismiss uh, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you. Um, for your word, we thank you for uh, reason once again to gather because you've given us your word, God book uh, for knowing you and knowing our own shortcomings and who we are in light of who you are. And Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us as we seek to, to understand your design for our family relationships. Lord, as we seek to have gospel-centered families and whatever stage of life we're in and whatever family relationships that that you've blessed us with. Lord, we do desire to, to know your desire for us in them and to live accordingly, Lord. So by your grace, teach us today and in the days ahead. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.